we are in the book of First John, the second chapter. So towards the end of your Bible, first and second, third, John, Jude, Revelation, just back up from Revelation a bit there. First John chapter two. It's not difficult to find the purpose. It's not difficult to find the reason for writing. I hope you're studying ahead and I hope you're looking at this chapter because the apostle states it in a very clear way. He gives his reason for writing in this second half of chapter 2. Look at verse 26. These things I have written to you concerning those who tried to deceive you. So he says right from the beginning, I'm writing to you because I don't want you to be deceived. There are those who are full of trickery. There are those who want to lead you astray. And part of the reason I'm writing this is so that you will not be deceived. So this morning we'll go in terms of you won't be deceived if. You won't be deceived if. That's the title, and then we'll add on to that if a few times. Even though I pointed out the reason for writing immediately to you in verse 26, John is one of those writers who works in a spiraling fashion. So he doesn't always tell us exactly what he's up to from the very beginning. Instead, he chooses to set a hook. Some people call it an anticipatory set. If you're a teacher, you're familiar with Madeline Hunter. And she said, it's a good idea to get your listener's attention, to get your reader's attention first. So he goes back to the beginning of this is really an 18. We're still not set. Are we set yet? We're set. Okay. We need an intermission. <laughs> Don't we? With snacks? <laughs> now I've got your attention. Okay, let's go to the... <laughs> You guys are like, okay, I don't get a snack. I'm not, forget it, I'm gone. No snacks. They get snacks in, in, in Sunday school sometimes, so you should start protesting and saying, where are our snacks? We don't have them midstream like they do. That's our issue. But he doesn't begin with his main purpose. Instead, he sets this hook, and he does it with the Antichrist in verse 18. Now, the Antichrist will get most people's attention. When you hear about him, most people say, ooh, I know that's really bad. I know that's the end times. I'm interested in the Antichrist. So it begins with the Antichrist in verse 18, although that's not his main reason for writing. I'm fascinated when I see the different New Testament writers and even the writers of the whole of Scripture. They're all spirit-inspired. They're all speaking the truth, but they have these different styles. And this is John's style. He puts the hook out there, and then he brings you into his main point. God doesn't want you and I to be deceived by heresy, by false doctrine. He doesn't want us to be led astray. Now, would the Bible keep mentioning deception if it wasn't a legitimate concern? No, it wouldn't. But sometimes we overestimate ourselves, especially in terms of the Antichrist, and we think, boy, he's so bad. If I couldn't recognize the work of the Antichrist, then it must be really foolish. But the deception or the spirit of the Antichrist or the agenda of the Antichrist is subtle sometimes. Because it's the work of the devil. And he doesn't always broadcast that it's, that it's him, that it's his work. So it's a prominent theme in Scripture, so we should take heed to it and say, I don't want to be deceived. It's not always going to be obvious. I need to be on guard. I want to consider the sneaky tactics, the distracting tactics, the tactics where the enemy wants to cloud our judgment. And if we're not walking in the Spirit, we're not abiding in the Word, that can happen. Let's go to 18 because we didn't study these verses yet. Little children, so padia, those who need instruction, that's me, that's you, amen? The little children who need instruction, that's all of us. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, 
that the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest, that none of them were of us. It speaks of the last hour. That definitely gets my attention. The last hour, the latter days, it's an era, not just a certain little piece of time. Really, the last days are the time all the way from Jesus' ascension into heaven after his resurrection, all the way up to his return for us. Those are the last days. That's the last hour, so to speak, that John speaks of. When Jesus ascended into the clouds, didn't the angel say to the disciples, why are you gazing up into the heaven? This Jesus is going to come the same way that he has departed. You're going to look up and you're going to see him in the clouds. Now, I do believe with all my heart that we are in the last of the last days, that we're at the end of the last hour. We have seen so much prophecy be fulfilled that wasn't understood at the time it was given, but now we understand more and more because it's come to fruition. So yes, the latter days in the time of John, but still in the latter days, waiting for the return of Jesus. It's a matter of how we perceive time and perceive prophecy. Now, I'm not going to talk about the Antichrist without talking about Christ. Because we're never told in the Scriptures to look for the Antichrist. But we're told to look for Jesus. We're never told to look for the Great Tribulation. We're supposed to have comfort in our hearts because we know he's coming back for us. So why do we care about the latter days? Why do we care about the last hour? Because it means that Jesus is coming soon. Why do we care about the Antichrist? Because I believe Jesus will take us up before the Antichrist takes the world down. And there wouldn't be excitement in the end times if Jesus were not coming to take us home. Instead, there would be dread, wouldn't there? To think of how the Antichrist will deceive the nations, to think of the wrath of God being poured out on the world because they've rejected Jesus. We would then say, I, I'm dreading the end times because there's so much punishment from God that's going to happen, and there's so much deception that's going to happen. But knowing that the Lord will come for us fills our heart with expectation. So you won't be deceived if, first point, if you're looking for Jesus to return for you, if you're looking for Jesus to return for you. The Lord wants us to be ready for his return at any moment. It's his imminent return. Go down to the end of the chapter, second to the last verse. Would you look at it? Verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Jesus is going to appear. He's going to come quickly. And let's not be ashamed at his coming. Let's be busy doing the business that he would have us do, keeping the commands that he would have us keep. You won't be deceived if you're looking for Jesus to return for you. I'll read you another verse that speaks of the imminency of Christ's returns from James chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. 
Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. The scriptures teach the imminent return of Christ. It's so many places in the scripture. What does that mean? It means that Jesus could return at any moment, as the scriptures say. He's at the door. He will appear. It's not something that we should say, oh, that's going to happen later. One of the reasons I believe wholeheartedly in a pre-tribulation rapture is, how could the return of Christ be imminent if he's not going to come until after the Antichrist and the Great Tribulation? Because we say, well, I know Jesus isn't coming back today because we haven't seen the Antichrist deceive the nations. And we're not living in the horror of the end of that seven-year period. So we could say with confidence, well, I know Jesus isn't coming back until after that. No, the scriptures teach that we should be prepared, expecting him, anticipating him. Skeptics say that since the church has been looking for Jesus for thousands of years, that he isn't coming back. But they don't understand that the scriptures say that looking for his coming changes the way that we live. Listen, Christian, if you don't think Jesus could come back today, that's going to drastically affect the purity or lack thereof in your life. If you think, oh, Jesus is going to come back sometime after the great tribulation and things are getting bad, but they're not that bad yet, why should I really live a pure and holy life before the Lord? I'll get my act together once the Antichrist shows up. But if you know the truth of the imminent return of Christ, it is going to change the way you live out your life practically. You're going to look to him for strength to live a life that's very different than the world, to live a life that's distinct. But if you think Jesus isn't coming back, then you're not going to live in a way that's very pure. I've got time. I remember the building inspector showing up at my house. I know he's coming. They give you this window of time, right? I don't know when he's coming in the window, but he's supposed to come during the window. And I'm running around trying to make sure I do all the little things to make sure I pass the inspection, right? I'm it's not as like, oh, he's going to find some things that he's just going to write me up anyways, right? Jesus returns. There's to be a readiness for us. So on purpose, the scriptures make it clear that his return is imminent. Go to the next chapter, 1 John 3, middle of verse 2. 1 John 3, middle of 2. We shall see him as he is. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, your eyes are going to see him. That right there is what I'm looking forward to, beholding the king. That's what it says, doesn't it? And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So if you have the hope of seeing Jesus, then it's going to purify you. If you have that blessed hope, it's going to cause you to live an expectant life. Part of the issue with the church today is there's little expectation. It shouldn't be that way. The time is short. I don't know how many more days I've got. People say, well, you don't look like you're going to die anytime soon. Well, I don't know for sure how many days I've got, neither do you. But I also don't know that the Lord isn't going to come back today. And will I be living according to his ways or my own ways? Since we know that we will see Jesus, we want to be sanctified. Since we know that we're going to lay our eyes on him, we want to be a whole lot different. When he returns, we want to be found doing things of the kingdom. Now, this is a certain hope. It's not a fleeting hope. This is a promise, not just a possibility. Jesus returning for his church. Early in this chapter, we learn that the world is passing away. Are you pouring your life 
into that which lasts forever? Or are you giving your time, your money, your energy, your love, even your affection to things that aren't going to last? Am I living an expectant life or a distracted life? That's a question I should be asking myself and you should be asking yourself quite often. Does expectancy describe the way that I live? Or am I distracted? Any distracted people here want to admit it? You, get, you don't get distracted? I do. It's a constant spirit guide me because look at what, I'm, what am I putting my life into? Believe me, there's a million things. At best, our lives can be distracted. At worst, they can be impure, not ready for him. Us being ready for Jesus because his return is imminent. Is it going to be the reverse that we're saying like, Jesus, are you ready for me? Jesus said, I've, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Is anybody going to say, well, Jesus, you're here. Let me see what you got for me. Let me see what you made. Let's, let's see about this house that you made. Is it really that good? Is it really that pure? Is it really that perfect? No. Jesus, ready for us. The question is, are we ready for him? Are we living expectant lives? Is he going to say, well done? Or is that just a, a nice verse that we hear? Are your works going to be consumed like wood and hay and just stubble? So many American Christians will be shocked I was doing the good old American Christian thing like so many other good old American Christians. How did I get 99% of my works consumed? There's no doubt about it. We should be living expectant lives, not distracted lives, setting our priorities on the return of Jesus, not on what is regular in the world around us, normal in the world around us, not on what is even normal in the context of the church. If we live like most of the church in America, is that a life of expectancy? I don't think it is. We, we've got to say, Lord, this, this normal doesn't seem very urgent. Live in purity. Use your gifts, your talents. Don't bury them. Skeptics also don't know what the scriptures say about time. So if you won't be deceived if you're looking for Jesus, but they don't know what the scriptures say about time. Let me read to you from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. You and I have only ever lived in the time continuum. All we ever know is sequential, have ever known is sequential existence. We don't understand, although we're told in the scriptures, that that's not what God's like. Like, the Lord can get something done really big and really awesome, in a really short amount of time. He created the world in six days. So a day to him is like a thousand years. He can get done in a day what would take anybody else. They couldn't do it, right? It's not as the Lord says like you and I do. I don't have time to get that done. That's not the Lord that we serve. At the same time, the Lord doesn't have the impatience that we have. Look, this is, this is years. The Lord says, that's like a day to me. Because I'm seeing all that's happening. And, and I, he is a patient God. He, he, he bears with us. So he sees and operates in a completely different timeline. The timeline of eternity. He can do anything 
as quickly as he wants to. What seems short to us is not short to him. What seems long to us is not long to him. The skeptics also don't understand that the Lord is waiting that they might be saved. For those who say, I don't know if Jesus is coming back, or I don't think Jesus is coming back, or even if there is a Jesus. You know what the ironic thing about that is? The reason Jesus has not returned is because he wants them to turn and believe in him. The reason Jesus hasn't come back yet is because he isn't willing that any should perish. I just read to you from 2 Peter chapter 3. I'll continue. I read verse 8, now I'll read verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So for those who say, oh, Jesus probably isn't coming back, or if he is, he's, he's really slack. No, actually, he's waiting for you to come to your senses, to turn from your sin, and to turn from him so that you can be saved. Because he doesn't want even a single soul to perish. That's the heart of God. He's not lax. He's not slack. He's long-suffering. Don't think because the Lord is tarrying that he has lost his heart for you. No. So if you're one of those skeptics today, realize he's waiting And part of the reason he's waiting is is he wants to bring those who are on the path of perishing onto the path of eternal life. So we're looking for Jesus. Why? Because it purifies us practically. Why? Because it totally puts our perspective of time into place. It adjusts our awareness of time. And also it makes us passionate about saving those who are perishing. Since Jesus could be back at any moment, that should make me care a whole lot about the souls around me that are being deceived by the agenda of the Antichrist. And there is an agenda of the Antichrist. Those who are being fooled, those who are being duped. It's not just for me and you to be mad at them. Do you just get mad at people because they're so stupid? You're familiar, with, you're familiar with that emotion also? Instead, they're blinded, Lord. They, they don't see. The reason that they're on that path is that they're, they're believing the father of lies instead of the father of life. They're duped. And so there becomes an urgency to say, I want to rightly represent Jesus. I don't want him to just think, oh, Jesus is some, you know, Jesus is a Republican white guy, and Jesus is... No. Jesus isn't a Republican, Right? <laughs> He's not wearing a suit on Capitol Hill. It's, he's not offering the answer to eternity in that mode and in that model. He is here to give you life. He is here to give you mercy. Do you even know what mercy is? Will you take it? He'll give you a second chance. He'll give you many chances if you'll turn to him and believe. Be passionate about reaching the lost. They're all around you. They need to hear the truth of our Lord. You won't be deceived if you're looking for Jesus to return for you. Look at the middle of 18. And as we have, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming even now, many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. The scriptures are clear that the Antichrist is a person, uh, an individual. An antichrist doesn't just mean against Jesus. It means in place of Jesus. But look here, it's, it's a proper noun. 
It's a title that refers to a certain person. It's written that way by John in the original language, and that's the way it's translated that way in your Bible, and you see that capital A for Antichrist. That's an individual powered by Satan to do a work against Jesus. Some say there will not be an Antichrist, just a spirit of the Antichrist, but the Bible says there will be both, both the man and the movement. Now, how long has the movement been going on? Well, even since the days of the Apostle John, don't you see it right here? It says, even now there are many Antichrists. There are those who are doing the work of the Antichrist. That agenda, that system will move towards the culmination in a single person. Get into the Word of God. Study it for yourself. See what it says about the Antichrist, that he will indeed be an individual. But even now, the seeds of the Antichrist are being sown into our society, and the devil would like to sow them into the church so that we're not aware of the way evil works. Now, maybe you speak this way because you're paying attention. There's an agenda. Don't you see the agenda? Don't you see that we're being fools, right? Do you understand that that's not just a person's agenda? That's just not the agenda of a certain political party or a certain mindset. That is an agenda of Satan. Now, the reason we don't want to say that sometimes is because it's it just shocks people. <laughs> you mean, well, okay, it's, maybe it's indoctrination, but is it really of the devil? It is. Well, maybe it's agenda, but it's just some people. No, it's more than that. It's the spirit of the Antichrist being made manifest all along the way until he makes himself known. You're seeing the agenda. You know that he is coming because there are many Antichrists that have already come. Now, Gnosticism we can label these things because that's the way they label themselves, but it's of the devil. It's not of the Lord. It's a replacement for Jesus instead of Jesus being our Savior, our God, our, our everything. It's a replacement for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit instead of the truth and the life that we find in the Almighty God. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. So you won't be deceived if you're staying aware within the church. Second point. So first of all, you won't be deceived if you're looking for Jesus to return for you. That imminent return will purify your life. It'll make you passionate about sharing the gospel with the perishing. But now look, you won't be deceived if you're staying aware within the church. Isn't that what verse 19 teaches? That deception often starts from within the church. I met this person. It seems so nice to me. They, they say they're a Christian and they have so much seemingly good stuff to share with me. Well, that might be the case, but don't count on it. Why? Because we see here that those who deceive don't stay outside of the church. No, they come inside the church to sow their discord. Or I met them at church. They must be from God. Well, they might be or they might not be, right? Discern. Verse 19 says they went out. That means they started from within and then they ended up departing, proving that they're not among the believing. And this isn't just like moving from one church to another when God, hopefully it's not, like a bad reason when God impresses on your 
part. Like I need to be a, a part of this assembly instead of that assembly of believers. This is no. They've gone out to do something that is destructive. They're doing the work of the enemy, right? Stay aware within the church. Now, we've spoken recently because the scriptures do about the family of God. It's so comforting. There's a great rest that we're brothers and sisters in Christ, that we can bear each other's burdens, that there are those who have maturity in the Lord and they're mentoring us and, and all of that discipleship is happening. There's supposed to be a belonging and a spurring on that happens within the family of God, right? Isn't that true? But there's also supposed to be an awareness within the body of Christ. There's not a blind trust because there are wolves among the sheep. Is that just for John's day or is that for today? They're not just on TV. They're not just on YouTube. They're among the church. They're wolves. So they have wool on the outside, but underneath the wool is some furry stuff, right? They have sharp, pointy teeth, not flat teeth for eating grass, right? They have sharp teeth to eat you. That's what the Bible is saying. And they're among us. Don't the scriptures teach this? Same principle here. You will not be deceived if you're aware within the church. Now, this is a fine line because we have some people that are just extremely suspicious. Like they think everybody's a wolf. Hey, pastor, I think there's a wolf over there. Keep your eye on them. It's like, they're like wolves everywhere for some people. And then there are some sheep, and they just don't think there's any danger anywhere within the supposed body of Christ. And they're just running around like, like a dog, like, hey, how you doing? Hey, this is so great. Well, it, it might be great, or that person might be leading you astray. That might be causing discord. They might not even know, because think of this, false teachers are deceived and being deceived. That's what scriptures say that they really think that their lies are true. So we can't be gullible, and we also can't be suspicious. We must let the Spirit of God guide us and give us discernment so that we're staying aware within the context of the body of Christ. Now, because so many people, and I'm talking about us too, not just people out there, are into judging souls these days, that they've, they've wrongly decided, oh, I think they love Jesus, so ultimately they just need to grow. Well, that might be the case, but I'm going to refrain from judging their soul and, and watch the fruit. If it acts like a wolf, smells like a wolf, eats like a wolf, it's probably a wolf. And then you say to me, well, Eddie, can't wolves get saved? Here we go. I'm trying to unearth. Yes, they can, but we're not going to give them ample opportunity to sow their destruction in the meantime. Do you see what I'm saying? There's a protectiveness that needs to happen. We need to stay aware in the context of, of the body of Christ. So look at what John is saying to the church. Jesus is coming back for you. Down at the end of the chapter. Stay aware within the body of Christ because there are those who have not continued with us. Verse 20, But you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. Can that be said of you? It can be said of you. Now, I don't know if you're in that position where, where, you're, where you're walking in the truth of Jesus Christ. But look, we don't have to be deceived. He says this to the body of Christ, that you have an anointing and you know the truth. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, 
but because you know it and that no lie is of the truth. So third point, you won't be deceived if you know the truth. This seems rather general, but isn't that what 20 and 21 are teaching? It's not some desperate attempt to protect the church. No, he says, you know better. You know the truth because you have the anointing of God. That means God is on you. That means the Spirit is in you. Jesus prayed, thy word is truth. Jesus taught, the Holy Spirit will lead you in all truth. And he declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So you can know the truth and not be deceived by the lie. But you must be anchored. You must be anointed. Now look at what it says here. The truth doesn't have any lies mixed in with it. It wouldn't be pure if it did. When it comes to purity and the truth, we're not after partial truth. We're not after, oh, there's some truth in there somewhere. No, we're after ridding, getting rid of the lies, not entertaining those lies. That would be compromise. Now, go further down because the same truth is developed, the same you know, spiraling technique. He talks about knowing the truth. If you go farther down in verse 26, but these things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you, but the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it is taught you, you will abide in him. This is not saying that you don't need to be grounded any further that you don't need to grow, that you don't need deeper roots in the truth. It's not contradicting the rest of the word and saying that we don't need people who are gifted to teach the Bible. It means that you know all of the things that I'm telling you. It isn't anything new to you. You've been taught these things, not just by the apostles, but by God himself. God has shown you the way of Jesus Christ. If you know the truth, then you're not going to be deceived. I know there are some, and, and they're going to chase around every weird idea, every false idea, every, every heresy. And I, I do know that that can be a, a certain ministry for people where they're just looking for the new label. They're looking for the new mix of ideas. But I, I want to focus on the truth. And if I know the truth, then that's going to reveal the lie, isn't it? If I know the, the real thing, then... I'm going to know the counterfeit. You've heard that so many times before. Like, if I don't know the truth, then I'm going to be tricked. So get well grounded in the truth. Don't think you have to read every book and listen to every podcast. Also, listen to this new weird idea. Well, if it's weird, do I, now I want to be able to give an answer for the hope that lies within me. But you know it. You don't need to get into all this weird spiritism or all this, if it's Gnosticism or it's somebody who's agnostic, Know the truth of God's word and you will know the counterfeit. You won't be deceived and you'll be able to give the answer for what is in you. The Lord will bring those things to your remembrance. You'll know his word, his anointing. You'll have his spirit dwelling richly within you, his word dwelling richly within you. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So 
This is refuting the Gnostics, both the ancient Gnostics and the neo-Gnostics alike, both in the past and in the current. One branch of Gnosticism said that since Jesus had a physical body, he couldn't have been God. Though that's denying the deity of Christ. Jesus is God. He did have a physical body, but they said, oh, he couldn't have had a physical body because your physical body is corrupt. Another branch said Jesus only came in spirit. He came like a ghost, denying the incarnation of Christ, denying that he came in the flesh. Jesus Christ, Lord of all, Jesus Christ, almighty God, came in the flesh to this earth. So he's unearthing. He is refuting these false ideas, this false teaching. Yet others would accept the idea. Let's look at what these verses say. Oh, there's a father God. I'll entertain that idea, but there's not God the Son. The Bible says that they're a package deal. If you deny the Son, you've denied the Father. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The worst lies are lies about Jesus. False teaching about Jesus. That's the most widespread category of heresy. I'm not saying that all heresy comes from misrepresenting Christ, but a lot of it does. And he says, you can't just say, oh, there's a Father God, but there's not God the Son. No. Receive the Son, you'll know the Father. Verse 24. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. So they heard the word of God from the beginning. They heard the message of the gospel. They heard the principles of the scriptures from the beginning. Let it abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. You might be so wrapped up in this life that you're not understanding that you're an eternal being. You might be so distracted with the physical and what people are pushing you to care about that you're not understanding that there's a longing within your soul to live forever because you will live forever. Will you live forever eternally in life? Isn't that the end of what we read there in verse 25? Will you have eternal life or will you have eternal death? There are just two paths. And Jesus made the path of eternal life perfectly clear for us. Maybe you've heard it before, maybe you haven't. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God loved you so much, you're a part of this world, that he gave his kid for you. I don't know if you're a parent, but any parent in their right mind loves their kid a whole lot. He so loved the world that he gave his son, that whoever, that means anyone who will believe in him, believe in Jesus, will not perish, but have everlasting life. Your trust, your faith, is it in Jesus as Lord? That's how you can know that you're headed to heaven. That's how you can know that you're guaranteed fellowship with God and that your days are going to be spent with fellowship and fellowship here on this earth and forever communing with God in heaven. It's not by your works. If it was by your works, then you would boast and you would say, look, I'm a big shot. I, I've done so many good things. I've earned my way to heaven. God will change you once you're saved. 
but it's by faith in him. You have a decision today to put your faith either in yourself or Jesus. To me, it seems like an easy choice. I shouldn't say easy. To me, it seems like an obvious choice. It's a hard choice. You're going to put your faith in what people are pushing on you? Every day it's revealed that they're just lying to us, right? In all these different arenas. Are you going to trust them? Or are you going to trust the rock-solid truth that the Lord has given us in his word? Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That is eternal life. It's not a fleeting hope. It's a solid hope that we have. God's guarantees are perfect. You won't be deceived if you abide. Are you abiding in him? What does abide mean? You know what an abode is probably. That's my abode. We don't use that word very much. That's my house. That's where I live. That's where I dwell. Our homes are precious to us. It's a place of safety. Are you abiding in Christ? He is the vine. We are the branches. Are you connected to him? Are you living in Jesus? And the word says here that also that he should be living in you. So there's an abiding that takes place where he's in you and you're in, in him. You won't be deceived if you're abiding in Christ. You won't be deceived if his word is abiding in you. Last study in the middle of this chapter, we learned that the young men were not deceived. They overcame the evil one. Why? Because they were in the truth, right? They had the truth in them. They were abiding in the truth. Not tricked, not pulled aside. They knew the truth because they knew the word. That abiding, Christian, is a moment-by-moment moment abiding. It, it's, it's, don't you see this as you're living out your life for God? You just start wandering. I'll talk for myself. I just start wandering. I'm like, look, I'm not abiding in, in God. I'm not resting in him. I'm doing all this calculating, all this thinking, and pretty soon it becomes anxiousness. It becomes worry. Or, or I'm, I'm not living an expectant life. I'm leading a distracted life. The abiding life is expectant. The abiding life is spent in fellowship. No matter where you are, do you know how good it is to abide in Christ? If you do, then you want to be there more often and you won't be duped, you won't be tricked. Doesn't this chapter close out with the same truth? Just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. This abide just keeps coming up over and over again. You won't be tricked by the world if you abide. You won't be tricked by the world if you know the truth. Search the scriptures. Find out what's true. Find out the lies that it exposes. Look for the coming of the Lord. I heard a song when I was in college called Might Be Today. It was written by a, a pastor, and I don't really know him that well. I met him a couple times. And we already sang some songs about the coming of Jesus. You know, you were singing, Jesus is coming soon. But this song brings it nearer than that. It says, it might be today. It, it might be this hour, right? Keep your eyes peeled. It's not like, oh, he'll be around sometime. And for the imminency of Christ's return, for his imminent return in our lives, what a wonderful thing to worship the Lord in. Lord, you're not far off. You won't strive with men forever. I praise your name for the promise that you're coming again for me. Would you stand and let's pray.
and let's sing. Lord, I pray that your truth would not be foreign to us. I pray that when we hear your word, it it would reside in us, that it would resonate with us, that it would be who we are. I pray that as your truth washes over us, we just be solid, Lord. Not solid just for our own sake, but solid for, for your kingdom, solid for the mission that you've set before us. I'm telling you, Lord, you already see my heart, but I, I need more expectancy. I, I need to look up more, and I need to have you change my life I'm towards the lost. And I need to be ready for the coming of the Lord. You're so much more than just an inspector, Lord. You're a savior. You're, you're the king. You're the one who's going to restore all things. We worship you now, Lord Jesus, in light of all these truths. Amen.